0: OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet. Suddenly people just walking out of their apartments, walking out of their homes, had a hard time breathing on quite a few days. I just think climate change got much more personal this summer. It could change behavior.
1: Welcome to the Best New Ideas and Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And
2: I'm James Rogers, a financial columnist at MarketWatch.
1: Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest.
2: Stephanie. This week, we're starting off with a news story that's been on many people's minds, the wildfires in Maui. And good evening from here in Maui, where we have just learned that this is now the deadliest wildfire in modern US history. The threat is not over. These fires are not fully contained. We've seen hotspots break out, water-dropping helicopters making the rounds overhead. This emergency is still unfolding. The disaster forced many to evacuate their homes left large portions of the island without power and destroyed the historic coastal town Lahaina.
1: Hundreds of people are still missing because of those devastating wildfires. Officials say that at least 96 are confirmed dead and that number is still likely to climb as search and rescue crews scour those ruins. The governor of Hawaii called the fires the worst natural disaster in the state's history and it's become one of the deadliest wildfires in U.S. history.
2: The fires in Hawaii are the latest in a series of events this summer that may represent a turning point in the way Americans are experiencing a warming planet.
0: There was something very different about this summer when it comes to climate change.
2: That's Rachel Koning-Beals.
0: I'm a assistant managing editor for Market Watch, but I primarily cover climate change, sustainability, ESG, environmental issues, and how they impact people's money.
1: Rachel has been covering climate change for a long time, but she says this summer marked a turning point.
0: This July was different. Of course it's summer, of course it's hot in many parts of the world, many parts of the U.S but more than 100 million Americans were routinely under heat warnings in July. So by major measures, the World Meteorological Organization for one, July 2023 was the hottest month on record.
2: Now to the record-breaking heat. Nearly 150 million under alert from coast to coast with many in the Midwest and Northeast experiencing their hottest days of the year.
0: You had people receiving third degree burns from sidewalks in Phoenix. One of the things that makes this
2: extreme heat so dangerous is how hot everything gets. The pavement and sidewalk can heat up to 150 plus degrees, and that can cause second and third degree burns if
0: you're not careful. You had so many consecutive days of temperatures soaring above 115 degrees in Phoenix. It's very dangerous. Texas was hot. Scientists tell us it's just going to continue where we have these strings of very hot days. You can create poor air quality at the ground level. Ground level ozone can become dangerous with high heat. And then we had that Canadian wildfire smoke that started to creep down into the northeast U.S., the upper Midwest. The smoke blanketed the city this morning, covering landmark city leaders say the air quality has not been this bad since the 1960s. Suddenly, people just walking out of their apartments, walking out of their homes, were either very hot this summer or had a hard time breathing on quite a few days. I just think climate change got much more personal this summer. It could change behavior.
1: Today, we're going to focus on just that. As extreme weather has many of us thinking about the future of climate change, there are many new and some old technologies that might help.
2: These run the gamut from large-scale global solutions to very personal tech that could improve outcomes when it comes to climate change. We're going to start with one of the big efforts, carbon capture.
0: So let me explain. Carbon emissions, carbon dioxide, of course, is the gas that's off-put when we burn fossil fuels to heat our homes, cool our homes, run cars, run businesses, run our technology. It seeps up into the atmosphere. It lingers for a long time. It creates kind of a dome that holds heat down closer to earth. So what if we could remove some of those carbon emissions? There's a couple of ways you can do it the sort of pie in the sky technology, if you will, it's more expensive, it's further out in the future, is direct air carbon capture. You're essentially taking a vacuum cleaner, not really, but just for image sake, a vacuum cleaner to suck carbon from the atmosphere. And earlier this year, Swiss-based Kleinworks did have a pretty big breakthrough when it came to a machine that can do this. So keep an eye on direct air carbon capture, but it is a few years, a few decades out.
2: Rachel says the other thing you can do with carbon capture is grab the CO2 right from the point of combustion.
0: So at an oil plant, at a steel plant, you essentially kind of outfit a cap over the machinery so that when combustion happens and CO2 is produced, it's sort of sucked up into this cap then what do you do with that CO2 if it can't go into the atmosphere? You store it deep underground and sometimes you can turn that waste, that CO2, into its own energy source. So there are ways for people to invest in this technology. It's just, it's huge. It's a little bit out there on the horizon, but it's something to keep an eye on.
2: Another climate-friendly energy source that's been getting more attention is one we explored in an episode earlier this summer nuclear power
0: nuclear power is getting a lot of attention this summer we did have the oppenheimer movie big successful movie which of course is about nuclear weapons but the science behind them are similar and and thus the risk and the concern if, if you've got technology that can be weaponized you know should it really be a mass-produced source of energy well people aren't giving up on nuclear that's for sure
1: Rachel says that there are a few factors that make nuclear an attractive option. For starters, it's clean, meaning it doesn't give off CO2 and methane emissions like burning coal, oil, or natural gas. Another positive, nuclear power can be a more mobile energy solution.
0: One of the more interesting sectors of the market is thinking smaller nuclear. In fact, they're called small modular reactors. They fit on the back of a flatbed semi-truck. That technology is a few years off. It's in prototype right now, but mass production of that is maybe anywhere from you know five, ten years away. There's really interesting use cases for it could pull up one of these SMRs, small modular reactors, right to a a big industrial plant and sort of have energy for electricity on the spot. You can also push them into the developing world, maybe parts of Africa that haven't had reliable electricity historically, and SMRs could be a real source.
1: Although the modular reactors are small, they're a big enterprise.
0: I mean, you know, multi-million dollar investment on a back of a flatbed semi. But the point is, is it doesn't have to be a fixed nuclear reactor like we're thinking of, you know, the, the plants that have been around around the country historically. Then you reduce reliance on transmission lines. You can be much more precise with ramping it up, turning it on while a factory is in use, for instance, and turning it off or down when a factory is closed. So. It's mobile, it's not going to be, you know, driving all over the country on the spot. It's just smaller, more flexible, and you really cut down on the extra expense of having to transmit that power to other users.
1: Batteries are another existing technology that's at the center of new climate solutions.
0: When we talk about the batteries that go in an electric vehicle, for instance, we are talking about lithium ion batteries. in and of themselves, they were quite the breakthrough. But lithium is, a, you know, rare resource. It doesn't uh, exist everywhere. In fact, in the United States, lithium is really only found uh, in abundance in Nevada, kind of one state. Nevada could be the the Silicon Valley of batteries. It's true, but it opens up questions about trade. You know, the U.S. having to rely on lithium from other trade partners
2: now battery makers are pushing into a couple of other areas.
0: One is sodium ion batteries. That's an emerging technology that's pretty safe, sustainable. The advantages are sodium, salt essentially, is much more in abundance. So you could scale this much faster. Another option are solid state batteries. And we won't exhaust the tech speak here, but just to give you an idea, they use solid electrodes. So they're a lot safer because it's sort of an on-off situation, not flammability or limited voltage. Some of those limitations you might have with other types of ion batteries. So that's a real possibility too. And then there's a third type called lithium sulfur batteries. And again, when we're talking about sulfur, pretty abundant, naturally occurring. And some of the niche markets where these have been used are satellites, drones, and military vehicles. So just three to kind of put out there if investors, if consumers are a little worried that lithium ion batteries aren't long for this world and that we need to kind of evolve into other types of batteries. Those are some types that are in development and could soon be mass marketed.
2: Rachel says that lithium-sulfur batteries are still probably a few decades away, as are many of the main pieces of climate tech we're talking about
1: today. But Rachel says there are also existing pieces of technology that can be used to new effect when it comes to making better decisions about the climate. One of them, data. One of the most compelling aspects
0: of climate change and why it's so worrisome is because it is a global issue. That means the behavior of a government in the Northern Hemisphere impacts a baby in the Southern Hemisphere. So I think data, how we collect data on atmospheric conditions or EV use or real estate implications from hurricanes can really matter when it comes to developing the technology to solve climate change. We need to know what's going on all over the world when we make these decisions. So one of the best ways I think we've used data when it comes to climate change recently is when it comes to real estate and insurance. If you think about it, we know there are hurricane zones, Florida, the Gulf of Mexico, but we don't exactly know unless we continue to collect the data, track it, make maps that predict future behavior. We can't tell how much further inland hurricanes are going to continue to impact property if we don't map this stuff. And we can only map it if we use data based on what we know so far and project how it could worsen. So there's a nonprofit called First Street Foundation. They've added wind and hurricane risk to a library of detailed maps and data that already includes floods and wildfire and heat risks. You can punch in an address into their system. Maybe you're thinking about a retirement in Florida and you want to know what in 10, 20, 30 years when I'm living there, what are my flooding risks from hurricanes, I'm not on the coast, but could I still feel an impact? And it's going to project the odds of those floods impacting your property in 20 years, in 30 years. It also layers in details of a dwelling itself. How old is the roof on that house? How close are the vegetation to the house? Should there be a wildfire risk? It's really smart stuff where it's like futuristic, weather maps on top of, you know, the materials that are already used on property. That's one of my favorite uses of climate change data. Let's just be smarter about how we insure our properties and where we buy in the first place.
1: Another source for this kind of data that Rachel highlights is a company called Climate Trace, which basically has
0: a huge comprehensive database and they kind of make like almost an x-ray or a ct scan what the human eye can't see but it's measuring all sorts of electromagnetic waves around the globe and heat infrared measures of heat so it's literally taking an x-ray of the earth from one little machine and isn't that fantastic as we try to tackle a problem as huge as climate change
2: and how about a Fitbit, but for a tree? A company called e is doing essentially that.
0: It's a small company that puts these sensors on trees, tells homeowners when that tree might need water. Uh, big forest services can use it to save a whole stand of trees. It can tell the people reading the data just when a slight lean of a tree starts, which could pretend a, a major issue of trees start falling down. When you get the Fitbit, readings from one tree, you usually can get a sense of what a whole stand of trees is feeling, how healthy that whole stand of trees is.
1: AI may also play a role in the development of new climate technologies.
0: We're often talking about just the scope, the size, the challenge of climate change solutions, and that AI can kind of make your world smaller. There's a company called Raptor Maps. They do geospatial renderings, drawings of a big solar farm, which means, you know, solar farms can take up acreage miles. And it means you can be in an office getting the AI readout from the solar farm where, you know, is there a particular panel that's down or is the sun uh, in such a position that the effectiveness of the farm isn't what you thought it was going to be that day. So it's a great idea of AI-driven use of just how huge this data is. It's an ungodly amount of data, but AI can condense that data, really spit back out to the users, you know, what you need to know. So I I do see that there are advantages when it comes to AI and climate change.
2: Coming up, large-scale solutions aren't the only innovations in climate technology. There's a whole new world of personal tech. That's after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com WSJ.
2: So, how do we get AI right?
1: Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust.
2: Are you ready? Hey. Are you ready for this?
0: Are you hanging on the edge of your seat?
1: But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right. Nice teamwork, guys.
2: Search HPE GreenLake.
1: Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, MarketWatch's climate reporter, Rachel Koning-Beals, walked us through some of the big global technologies that will shape the future of climate change. But those aren't the only developments when it comes to climate tech. Many of them are available on a more individual level. So when it comes to
0: climate change and thinking about what we can do personally, of course we're trying to to save Earth, but, but there are some real cost factors here. Certainly over the decades, and let's say decades of the future, we need to get smarter about how we heat and cool and power our homes. It'll save you in money. It'll make you feel better about your impact on Earth. One of the easiest ways is just to swap out a traditional thermostat for a smart thermostat. You may require a slightly improved wiring system. So while in a lot of cases a homeowner can just do the swap themselves, it doesn't hurt to ask an electrician just in case. They usually cost about $200 to purchase it and install it. It could go up to $400, but most thermostats on the market are are at that lower end.
2: How exactly does a smart thermostat work?
0: It's complete with features like Wi Fi capability, so you can control it from afar. You're not just heating your home because you have no access to that thermostat, you can control it from your smartphone. You can turn on heating and cooling in particular zones in your house. So if there's a basement or something that you're not using on a regular basis, there's no reason to heat or cool it. Sometimes smart thermostats, they know if you're home or not. They detect occupancy in the house and they turn on accordingly. There's just a lot of features. It's a relatively low cost addition to your house. It's gonna cut that bill. It's gonna make you feel better about the energy you're wasting.
1: Another home upgrade that's becoming more and more popular are heat pumps.
0: It's sort of the worst name in a a way. It's not just about heating, it's about heating and cooling. It's essentially a system that is both a furnace replacement and an air conditioning system replacement. Typically, your furnace historically they've been fed by wood or coal. More recently, a lot of us have natural gas furnaces. So, what we're doing is we're replacing that natural gas furnace. And most homeowners they might do a swap just to do a swap, but often the swap is happening when you need to replace a furnace anyway. And, And then you start to think, oh, maybe a heat pump. It relies on pulling the heat from the outside pumping it into the heat pump, or you can raise the internal temperature then, and then you reverse the process when you want to cool your home. You suck hot air into the heat pump and pump it outside of the house.
2: While updating a heating and cooling system might seem daunting, there's a good reason for homeowners to do it right now.
0: The most interesting thing with heat pumps right now, I think, is there are tax credits up to as much as $2,000. That was part of that IRA passed in 2022, which continues to be sort of fine-tuned. So I do recommend going on the Department of Energy website or the uh, IRS website to make sure the latest rules apply to you. But don't buy that heat pump without first considering that there are tax credits out there.
1: The IRA Rachel mentions is the Inflation Reduction Act, which we've talked about on the show before. But even with the tax credit, going all in on heat pumps may be a big step for some. But Rachel says there's a smaller move you could make first.
0: I think one of the smartest home moves that people can make right now when it comes to climate change isn't really tech heavy. It's simply an audit of your home energy use. You can get a professional in to do it. It costs a few hundred dollars, up to about $400. It just tells you, where are you wasting energy? Where are your ducks insufficient? You know, how old is your AC unit and could it be replaced and really save you a lot of money? Good news here too, that IRA tax credit now includes a little bit of an incentive to purchase a home energy audit. So before you take the bite and get all the new tech and the new software, the new you know gadgets it's in your house, just do an old-fashioned audit and just get a nice report card on your energy use. I, I think it'll set you on the right course.
1: Climate change is a big topic and it can feel scary to a lot of people. But Rachel says it can also be an energizing topic to report on.
0: I'm excited because I think we're on the brink of the next industrial revolution and one that's going to include a lot more people participating in it than just sort of, you know, the elite of the world. And by that, I mean, let's solve for this issue. Let's let's advance the technology. Let's be smarter in our homes. Let's embrace the opportunity for new jobs. I see business opportunities in climate change. I see technological opportunities in climate change. I don't think it has to be a scary proposition. It's a serious proposition, but there are solutions. There are ETFs, exchange traded funds that focus on clean energy. There are, like we said, personal purchases, a smart thermostat or a heat pump. There are major universities. Yale has a dedicated climate research arm. There are smaller universities. There are oil companies and mining companies that see the writing on the wall and are advancing their own technology for carbon capture. Everybody is getting in on this. Individuals should feel like they're empowered to buy the next technology that's going to help these solutions too.
1: Thanks for listening to the Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at MarketWatch.com. Thanks to Rachel Koning-Beals. To learn more about new ideas in climate change, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton.
2: And I'm James Rogers. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Meta Lutzhoft and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Tim Roston was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.